Mark 9:30 to 10:31. They went on from there, that is Jesus and the disciples, and passed through Galilee. And he did not want anyone to know, for he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days he will rise. But they did not understand the saying and were afraid to ask him. And they came to Capernaum. And when he was in the house, he asked them, What were you discussing on the way? But they kept silent, for on the way they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. And he sat down and called the twelve, and he said to them, If anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. And he took a child and put him in the midst of them, and taking him in his arms, he said to them, Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me, receives not me, but him who sent me. John said to him, Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he was not following us. But Jesus says, Do not stop him, for no one who does a mighty work in my name will be able soon afterwards to speak evil of me. For the one who is not against us is for us. For truly I say to you, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. And if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell, to the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame than with two feet to be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes and to be thrown into hell, where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. For everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if the salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. And he left there and went to the region of Judea and beyond the Jordan, and crowds gathered to him again. And again, as was his custom, he taught them. And the Pharisees came up and in order to test him, asked, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? He answered them, What did Moses command you? They said, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and to send her away. And Jesus said to them, because of your hardness of heart, he wrote to you this commandment. But from the beginning of creation, God made the male and female. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. And the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. And in the house, the disciples asked him again about this matter. And he said to them, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. And they were bringing children to him that he might touch them. And the disciples rebuked them. But when Jesus saw it, he was indignant and said to them, Let the children come to me. Do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. 
Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. And he took them into his arms and he blessed them, laying his hands on them. And as he was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked to him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments, do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and mother. And the man said to him, teacher, all these things I have kept from my youth. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, you lack one thing. Go, sell all that you have and give it to the poor. And you will have treasure in heaven and come, follow me. Disheartened by the saying, the man went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. And Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed at his words, but Jesus said to them again, children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And they were exceedingly astonished. And said to him, then who can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, with man it is impossible, but not with God. For all things are possible with God. Peter began to say to him, see, we have left everything and followed you. Jesus said, truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brother or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last first. And uh, keep your Bibles open to the passage. Um, We're going to be going through this quite quickly. There is a lot of stuff in here. There is a lot of stuff in here that we just won't be able to have the time to look at. Um, um, It's a big passage. And uh, what I want to do today is to show you how this fits into the rest of Mark. The main theme that is happening over these six scenes that we have, which is um, what it means to follow Jesus or what it looks like to follow Jesus. Um, Feel free to come to me afterwards and ask questions of the passage. There are some difficult things in here, um, but we will go through it um, fairly quickly. Um, when I was 16, and, and I, I don't know how many people, I don't know how many of you know this, this might shock you. It shocks Jen to this day. Um, I applied to the RAF. I know. Uh, suspend disbelief for the moment, bear with me. Um, I don't know if you know what applying to the forces looks like, but in the case of the RAF, you have to go through a fairly thorough and quite long selection process. And remarkably, after all my selection interviews, the RAF amazingly found me someone to be whom Her Majesty might want defending her realm. So they sent me, shipped me off to RAF Cranwell in Grantham for a week's worth of officer selection training. And that's where the fun really begins. Day one is aptitude testing, hours of mind-numbing computer games. You have number exercises, memory exercises, target practice. I squeaked through by the skin of my teeth. Day two is the medical test. Enough said about that, the better. Day three is fitness training, just about the worst day of my life so far. I'd been with this group of people for about two days, and we'd already picked up nicknames. Mine was bare minimum. And... (laughs) 
after giving absolutely everything that I had in my circuit tests and my cross-country run, I miraculously found that I had taken the glorious spot of fastest loser, which is pretty much my motto in life, and I squeaked through to day four, which was leadership training. Now, by this stage, I was getting quite confident. I'd made it to day four, only two days to go. 25 people out of the 50 of us who had started had been sent home. I felt quite good about myself. And our team was up first to navigate an assault course where we had to work together to get ourselves across this course by teamwork and by natural leadership. And if there's one thing I really enjoy, it is telling people what to do. And with the intent on really shining in this task, like I hadn't actually done with all the others, I went all out. I strutted myself around this group. I yelled at them. I demanded things. I dominated all of the planning conversations. I was showing the officers who were watching really who was in charge. Unfortunately, everyone else had the same idea. And what was a relatively friendly group of people up until that point descended very quickly into a farcical showdown. Everyone was hollering, yelling, and shouting, and every now and again, someone would try and show their own personal brilliance, often failing miserably. In short, the entire exercise was a complete disaster. And by the time we got to the end of it, we were brought, in our humiliation, to the wing commander, soaking wet, bruised, and he said, after an expulsion of some very colorful language, he said, you know what your problem is? You're all too arrogant. And you all see yourselves as being more important than anyone else. You don't want to work as a team. You wanted to win. There was no way you were going to be able to get across that course if you weren't prepared to put aside personal ambition and look out for each other. The mark of an officer, he said, is humility. Mark 9.35 If anyone will be first, he must be last. He must be last of all and servant of all. You see, as we look at what it means to be a follower of Jesus today, we see that the hallmark of a Christian or the hallmark of someone who follows Jesus is humility. And as we hit these six scenes that happen in quite quick succession, we see that Jesus teaches us six lessons about what it is to follow Jesus. And the thing that links them all together is humility. Being a follower of Jesus is meaning to be a servant of all, not giving into rivalry, treating sin seriously, honoring marriage, having a childlike dependence on Jesus, and being willing to give up everything. All these things require incredible humility. The giving up of our rights, our own desires, the things we depend on, our own stuff, for the sake of being able to follow Jesus, to love others, and to depend on him. That's what we're going to be looking at today in a lot more detail. But before we do that, let's pray together. Heavenly Father, God, we thank you so much for this time together. Thank you for your words. Lord, we pray that as we go through this very, very... Uh, big, dense, and exciting passage. We pray that you would uh, teach us things that we need to learn about how we follow you, what it is that we need to look like as followers of Jesus. And Father, I pray that we would come away from here um, challenged about things that we maybe need to do and change, but also warmed by the fact that you have achieved everything for us through your son, Jesus Christ, on the cross. 
And for that sake, we give you all the glory in your mighty name. Amen. So first of all, as a follower of Jesus, true humility is being a servant of all, verses 33 to 35. Now look at these passages again. Look at that text. We've got a very similar scene here to that of my leadership training team back in Grantham. Jesus and his disciples come to Capernaum, and he's in the house, and he asks them, what are you discussing on the way? But they keep silent. For on the way, they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. Now, that is not a difficult scene for us to comprehend, I think. Um, We had uh, my sister and her husband and their three children staying with us this week, and Sarah, if you're listening to this, your children are adorable. But on the most basic of levels, you see this being played out with them. They are working out who is the greatest through fists and teeth and hair pulling. And that scene is a common scene in our society, being personally ambitious to the detriment of others, from the office to the gym to my own family. But as much as we know that is true in the world, note that Jesus is talking to us. He's talking to his disciples. He's talking to us in this room now. And as we see the disciples themselves arguing about who is the greatest, the lens turns onto us as a church, as a Christian community, as followers of Jesus, as charmers. How do we really feel about the people sitting right next to us this morning? Do I revel in their successes? Do I secretly despise them for being successful? Are we a church who go out of our way to love each other? Practically, publicly? Are we a church who longs to serve each other? And know what Jesus says here. He says, this person, a follower of Jesus, must be a servant of all. That means not just those we already get on with, that's quite easy, but those that we really don't get on with. Are these people, people we are going to bend down and serve regardless of reward or recognition? Or do I put all my time and effort into wanting to be perceived by everyone around me in a certain way? The strong Christian, the successful Christian, the sorted Christian. Or if we're really honest, let's get rid of Christian. Do I just want to be seen as strong, successful and sorted? What does Jesus say to this? He takes a child Someone who in first century Israel was the lowest of the low to a certain extent. They weren't really a real person until much later on, until they were grown up. And Jesus says, whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. See, Jesus is turning society on its head. Guys, if you really want to know what it is to be great, will you look to the bottom of society? You serve them. That's where you start. You serve the lowly among you, the unclean among you, the outcast among you, the difficult among you, those who you do not get on with. And in doing that, you receive me. That's what it means to be great in my style of kingdom. It's completely countercultural. That's what it means to be first. You need to become last. And the idea of becoming last is actually quite helpful here because we could, if we're not careful, fall into the trap of becoming a Dickensian Uriah Heap type character where we dole out public service for people in a slimy way just so that others can see how humble I am. Becoming last helps me understand that this stuff often goes unnoticed. Now, 
I have come last in many running races. And believe me when I tell you that no one stays around for the loser, except your mum, and that's only because she has to. And in my case, the celebration for the person who has won has long since passed. That's what being last means. Whoever wants to be first in my style of kingdom, Jesus says, has to be the one that goes without being seen. The one that goes unnoticed. The one that stays behind at the end. The one that is not applauded or lauded. You serve each other and you serve the least by being the very last. That strips my attitude to public service of all its prideful intent or its wrong motive. Can you see that? That's what being a follower of Jesus looks like. But Jesus moves on. True humility in following Jesus is not giving in to rivalry. And we move on very quickly to seeing that the rivalry isn't just between the disciples, but it is between the disciples of Jesus and other people who claim to follow Jesus. Verse 38. Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name when we tried to stop him because he was not following us. In other words, this rivalry not only happens between us here in Chalmers Church, but between church communities. Do we think we're the only show in town? I used to suffer from this greatly when I was working for UCCF, and I'm going to be honest. I used to envy other CEUs that had better mission weeks than mine. And the upshot of that is I spend all my time trying to outperform other groups for the sake of not losing face for wanting people to see how well I'm working. And the last thing I'm thinking about is Jesus and more about, about empire building. That's why Jesus says here what he says. If they're not against us, then they can only be for us. But note what Jesus does here. He kind of turns this rivalry bit on its head a little bit. Before, we had Jesus showing us a child as an example of someone we need to serve. And here, he gives us the symbol of a small, uninteresting cup of water as something that we shouldn't refuse. What's going on there? Well, simply, I think Jesus is getting to the heart of the disciples' real problem. That of thinking of themselves as being greater than anyone else. In short, Jesus is pointing out that they're not just upset with this person casting out demons because he is not part of their club. The disciples are dismissing what this person is doing for Christ as being small and insignificant because we're the disciples of Jesus himself. Our work is so much more significant. Do we do that? Do we think that me personally, or, or even us as a church, come with a certain gravitas that should be recognized? Do we sometimes in our heart of hearts like the fact that we're a large, well-functioning, blessed church, giving silent credit to ourselves rather than to God, and, and dismissing others by default? Whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you follow Christ will by no means lose their reward. It's important stuff, seemingly insignificant work for the kingdom. Don't despise it. That's what being a follower of Jesus looks like. But now we get to the really uncomfortable stuff. And Jesus is rattling on here at quite a rate. And he sort of turns from talking about the disciples as a group in many respects, to looking at them individually. 
where we see that true humility in following Jesus is being serious about sin. And Jesus does not beat about the bush here, does he? And why is this part here in Mark at this moment? Well, it makes sense. It is a natural part of the process of humility. And we can only manage in our fight to serve each other well and in our fight against rivalry if we are serious about sin. That goes without saying. And that's why Jesus moves on to this straight away. He doesn't really pause for breath, if you notice, between verses 41 and 42. And again, he focuses on the lowly. Those who have been dismissed by the disciples, whether it be a child or someone doing something insignificant in Jesus' name. And he gives them a fierce warning that not only do you have the responsibility to humbly serve them and to humbly receive them, but you are not to cause them to sin. Look at the language. Verse 42. It would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and thrown into the sea. This is shocking stuff. And don't forget, he's talking to the disciples. Jesus is talking to followers of him. We would do wrong to forget that. This is our warning. We do not get off the hook here. And there's a lot of hyperbole here that is deliberate in its intent to shock. If your hand, foot, eye causes you to sing, cut them out. It is far, far better for you to enter the kingdom of God without these things than enter hell fully embodied. Where, we read, you exist in an eternal state of punishment, constantly being without God. That's what verse 48 means. Where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. What's the greater sacrifice? Your hand or your whole eternal life? That's the comparison that Jesus is making. Think back to last week, Mark 8.36. What does it profit a man that he gained the whole world and yet forfeit his soul? It's the same warning. Jesus does not beat about the bush in terms of the judgment for sin that goes unchecked. He does not let us off the hook in terms of hell. He does not soften the blow for us. He does not make it palatable for us. The stark warning about hell is the loving act of the Messiah that shows us without equivocation just what we are playing with when we are playing with sin. We are playing with fire. And if Jesus were not so clear and if he were not so vivid in this warning of hell, it would only drag us into a false sense of security. And we know that's true. And as much as it might make Jesus seem nicer... It would also make him unloving and disingenuous. Now it goes without saying that we're not meant to actually take our eyes and feet and hands off because the root of sin is in the heart. We know that. But that doesn't let us off the hook because you can bet your bottom dollar that there are things that I can remove that will help with my battle of sin. Maybe it's a thing, a phone, my computer, the television. What about people? That unhealthy relationship with a non-Christian boyfriend or girlfriend that I know is wrong. That relationship with that toxic friend that dispenses unhelpful advice and is my champion for all the wrong reasons. What is it that I need to cut off? 
And you know what it is. This is a really hard part of scripture to read, but it is necessary. And there are no caveats here in Mark about what is being said. And we have to leave the warning as it stands. What are the things that we know we seem to be getting away with? Where I am flirting with real danger in my life in regards to sin. And what do I need to do to sort that out? When I leave this room this morning, what is the first thing I need to do in terms of my battle with sin? Or do I, as verse 49 tells me, allow myself to continue meddling with sin, which ultimately wears me down, makes me unsalty. It makes me less effective as a Christian, in other words. The more I feed my sin, the more likely it is to gain ownership over me. As Genesis 4 reminds us through the direction of God to Cain, just before he murders his brother, beware Cain, sin is crouching at your door and its desire is for you. But you must rule over it. To be a follower of Jesus means I have to treat sin with the utmost serious. And that takes a lot of humility. What is it that I love that I need to remove? And with that in mind, Jesus remarkably turns to marriage. Where we see very simply that following Jesus in true humility is honoring marriage. Now, before we go into this, I want to say that we could do an entire sermon series on these few verses alone. Again, we don't have the time to go into this in a lot of depth, but there are some things here that are really important that are necessary to say, and that's very helpful. First, think about, again, where this comes into the text. We are looking at what it looks like to follow Jesus, humbly, in humility, And so it makes sense then that marriage, the one thing that God ordained between man and woman all the way back at the beginning of the Bible, is held up as an example in which real discipleship is shown between a man and his wife who are individuals but become one flesh. And think about what that looks like. Complete and utter abandonment as your rights as an individual person. The most humbling thing you can do is to give up your rights as an individual person for the sake of someone else. That's what being a follower of Jesus looks like. And it is found nowhere more vividly than in the marriage relationship, where you literally vow before God to give up your rights for that other person publicly. Now, I'm not saying that that can't happen outside marriage. Of course it can. That's what we've been looking at. Someone who serves the least of those around them gives up their rights as an individual. But marriage is a truly unique picture of what that looks like. To remain married means to remain in constant, humble service to each other, to the exclusion of all others under the ordinance of God. To divorce, therefore shows the heartbreaking breakdown of that mutually dependent, humble, loving relationship. Now, divorce is obviously a very sensitive issue. This is hard. As is marriage. That's a sensitive issue for some of us in our own marriages or in our past marriages. And as we see here, by way of the very thing that the Pharisees are asking Jesus about, we see that the Bible itself acknowledges that in a fallen world, divorce is sometimes a sad necessity. We know that. 
where the marriage has broken down beyond repair and it is safer for everyone to part. That's what Moses is getting at in Deuteronomy 24. That's what the, uh, the Pharisees are asking about. But here in Mark, what Jesus is getting at is the glibness with which the Pharisees seem to be treating marriage. Note, they don't ask about marriage, they ask about divorce. There's no question from the Pharisees as to what recompense in a difficult marriage might look like. There's no concern for the act of searching for compromise. There's no seeking how to honour the wedding vow. They seem to be treating divorce and thereby marriage very lightly. And quite clearly, Jesus says, that is not how marriage should be treated. Verse 9, what God has put together, no one should separate. Which means a whole host of things. It means you go into marriage incredibly carefully, with much serious thought. You do not leap into matrimony knowing that you have a get-out clause. That's not what divorce is there for. And in our day and age, is that not exactly how marriage is treated? And Jesus says, no, be different. To follow me is to keep marriage. For a disciple of Jesus, it is the norm to fight for their wedding vow, to remain together. This is the very radical, very countercultural life that Jesus' followers are called to. I am to be so deadly serious about marriage that I understand that one of us will die before we are separated. That's how seriously I am to take marriage. And that means I fight for it. For every moment. That means I get rid of everything that clings like dirt to my relationship with Jen. My pride, my selfishness, my lust, my independence, all gone. And that requires daily work. It's really hard sometimes. Jesus here is attacking the lack of real intent in marriage. And therefore the lack of humility in marriage. And marriage is hard. Sometimes, And in the closest of relationships where two very individual people are drawn together into one person, a marriage where both partners are fighting to remain together shows incredible dependence. Not just on each other, but on Christ. This is what a follower of Jesus looks like. Dependence on Christ in marriage. In short, marriage requires real dependence on Jesus. And that is why I think Jesus moves on to the very next example of what being a follower of him looks like. As we see children coming to him. Because following Jesus in true humility is having childlike dependence on Jesus. Again here in this next bit, Jesus uses the example of the child for the third time. Again, the disciples are dismissive of them, turning them away. And Jesus says, guys, you're missing the point. Whoever does not receive the kingdom of God is like it, like a child shall not enter it. In short, unless you have a childlike dependence on me, like these children who just want to be with me, no questions asked, no theological hoops to jump through, no things to sort out first, no conditions to be met, you'll never enter the kingdom. And I wonder whether we've all lost the wonder of going to Jesus like we would have run to our dads as a kid. 
Just being a dad over the past three months has been a remarkable experience of watching Toby have to trust me and Jen for literally everything, from getting him up in the morning to feeding him to getting him dressed. That's the kind of childlike dependence I think Jesus is pointing out here. And the thing is, Toby doesn't need to know everything there is to know about me in order for me to protect and help him. He just needs to know one important thing, that when he cries, I'm there. Or that when he asks for things, I respond. That when he's hurting, I come. And don't get me wrong, knowing more and more about Jesus is good. We're allowed to ask questions of him. That's encouraged. I'm not belittling that. That's why we read the Bible and come to church, that we know more about him. We're not talking about childishness here. We're talking about childlikeness. Indeed, Paul says, I've put away childish thinking and I've grown mature and have become a man in terms of my faith. But when I approach Jesus, wherever I am, I have to understand that I am very much the child in this relationship. He is very much the father of good things. And I simply, fully, like a child, put all my trust in him. Daily in my prayer life, that shows my dependence on Jesus. Daily in my reading my Bible, that shows my dependence on Jesus. Daily in my asking for help of him and other Christians in community around me, that shows my dependence on Jesus. The way I'm able to keep my marriage alive is by my simple and profound childlike dependence on Jesus. And in doing this, there has to be a real display of humility. Being like a child means very definitively that I cannot do this on my own. I need a much bigger person to help me. And that's what we need to be like with Jesus. Lord, I can't do this on my own. I desperately need your help. And neither is this complicated. I don't have to work out where Jesus is theologically in returns to the issue that I may have or whether I've gone about it all the right way. I just come to him. And that's what the disciples have got wrong here. They were not humble. They thought too much of themselves and too little of Jesus. Don't make that mistake. Don't allow your pride and your independence stand in the way of you humbly accepting real help in a life where you need real help on a daily basis. And that's what being a follower of Jesus looks like. But moving on finally, we come to the scene that shows us that true humility in following Jesus is being willing to give up everything for him. Now, for the first time in this passage, and in a way I think that is deliberate in the way that Mark finishes off this section, we have Jesus sort of having a dialogue with one, one real person, this rich young man. Seems to be a little bit longer than the others. And this man asks Jesus a great question. What must I do to inherit eternal life? In short, what must I do to be a follower of Jesus? That's what he's asking. And after having seen that this man has worked hard by keeping as many commandments as he can, and after seeing just how much Jesus loves him in verse 21, we see that Jesus gets right to the man's real issue, money. Or rather, the love of money. You lack one thing. Go, sell all that you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come, follow me. And the response is devastating. 
Disheartened by the saying, the man went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. Will you give up everything for me? That's what Jesus is saying. Will you humble yourself and get rid of that one thing that is holding you back and come follow me? And as a consequence, depend not on that thing, but like a child, depend on me. Jesus again plays hardball here, doesn't he? Especially in regards to money. He says it's difficult for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. Indeed, it's easier for a camel to enter through the eye of a needle. Are we genuinely worried about losing our money for the sake of Jesus? Is giving all my money away something that I could not do? Hand on heart, am I really willing to give it all away? Or more realistically, am I giving till it hurts? Am I really pushing the limits of my comfortability? Or am I ultimately relying on my wealth for comfort? Or am I relying on my dependence on Jesus? Now this is really hard. This is really hard. Jesus pinpoints this issue, I think, like he does with marriage. We have a problem with this in society. Even as Christians... I wonder if we believe that money really is the answer to everything. I just fall into that trap automatically. If only I had more money. And it's not just the wealthy that struggle with this. Sometimes it can be more of an issue for those who have little and crave much to the point where it becomes the thing that drives me to distraction. And the disciples' amazement at Jesus here is because money was very much seen as a blessing from God. And the teachers of the law were very wealthy people. And so when Jesus says that it's practically impossible for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God, he's highlighting those that are perceived to be the closest to God as being the most far away because their wealth is holding them back. Now we know that having a lot of money is not a bad thing, but what we do with it and how we feel about it can be. And note, it is not just money that we might need to get hold, get, to let go of. So we see in verses 29 to 30, it can also be people in relationships specifically. Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left his father, his house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold and eternal life. Again, what one thing do you need to let go of? What one person do you need to let go of in order that you may run unhindered into the arms of Christ and fully depend on him instead? In humility, what do I give up the right to own, the right to love, and the right to crave in order that I may gain Christ? The mark of following Jesus is true humility. And following Jesus looks like someone who must become a servant to all, must not give in to rivalry, being jealous of others, is deadly serious about sin, who fights for their marriage every day, who drops their proud facade and comes to Jesus like an incapable child, and who is willing to give up everything for him. That's what it looks like to follow Jesus. Boy, is that heavy. <laughs> But boy, is this glorious. Can you imagine what our church would look like if we live like this? Is that not an incredible thought? Jesus is not bashing us over the head here. He's allowing us to see what real life in him looks like. 
A life where in a difficult fallen world where we serve each other well, where our marriages are protected and worked at, where we're not worried about sin overtaking us as we do battle with it. A life where I can be fully honest in front of you and dependent on Christ. A life that is so different to the rest of the world. This is what God's kingdom looks like. Radically different. This is my kingdom, Jesus says. No wonder it's hard. It looks so different. But it looks so glorious. We'd be lying if we got to the end of this and thought, actually, I really do want that. I really do not want to be panicked about what I'm thinking about my money. I really don't want to be panicked about my relationship and my marriage. I want to enjoy them. But the question remains as we close, how on earth do we do this? I read this passage and I really panic. A lot of my prep this week has just been panic. This seems to be an impossible task. And we can get to this point and sometimes we can despair as to whether we are followers of Jesus at all. First, let me say that the reason Jesus tells us about what it's like to follow him is because he knows it's hard. If we found this easy, we wouldn't need to be talked, we wouldn't need to be warned. But secondly, and far more importantly, is this not what Jesus has already done? And here is where we get to the real crux of the passage, because we've actually missed out the two most fundamentally important sections, without which the Christian life is nothing but a slog of servitude. And that is verses 30 to 32 of chapter 9, and me being cheeky by looking ahead, verses 32 and 34 of chapter 10, the bookends of this entire section. What do we read? For the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days he will rise. And again, verse 32 of chapter 10, The Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death, and to deliver him over to the Gentiles. And they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. And after three days he will rise. That's what humble service looks like. Can you see what Mark is doing here? The call for the Christian to be a follower of Jesus as a humble servant of all, to be the last and the least, to be serious about sin, to remain faithful in marriage, to be dependent on him, to give up everything, is possible because Christ shows us what that looks like. That's what following someone means, doing what they do. Jesus shows exactly how it's done. Jesus starts and finishes this difficult passage with his own example of suffering, faithful, servant-heartedness. Jesus does not ask us to do anything that he has not done himself a hundred times over. Except not only does he show us this in how he lives, he ultimately shows it us on the cross. The Messiah, God's anointed king, who had every right to stand on his rights as God himself, but instead chose to show us what it really meant to be a servant of all, what it really meant to be the least and the last, what it really meant to make others greater than him, what it really meant to remain faithful to his covenant relationship with man, what it really meant to show simple but profound dependence on the Father, what it really meant to give up everything as he delivered himself over to death. Philippians 2, so church, 
If there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy, says Paul, by being of the same mind, having the same love, being full accord and of one mind. Do nothing out of envy and rivalry or vain conceit, but in humility count others as more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. That's literally everything we've been looking at in Mark. How do we do this? Paul continues. You have this mind among yourselves, which is your example in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of man and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Christ, the greatest suffering servant, is our perfect example of humility. But I'm going to end here. Not only is Jesus our example to follow, but he is also the means by which I am able to do all these things. You see, my following him is not based on myself, but it is based on dependence on him. Christ goes to the cross because he knows that in all these areas we are weak and fickle and will inevitably fail. Christ's death grants me his righteousness. And my living in daily dependence on him means that when I get this wrong, I run back to his arms. When I struggle to give things up, I turn back to him and I'm reminded of his goodness. And when I fail in my sin, I run back to him in sincere repentance and I am given forgiveness and I am allowed to start all over again. And so as we think about how we go about these things as followers of Jesus, we don't look to ourselves for the gumption to achieve them. We look to Christ, who did all these things perfectly and who died for me in order to give me his righteousness so that I can be found to be the perfect one before the throne of God in Christ himself. And as I attempt to do all these things, I realize that I can only do them because I am dependent on him and not myself. And that requires the greatest amount of humility, where I die to self and to my own desires, and I allow Christ to take control as he aids me and helps me through my walk in following him. Let's pray together as we close. Heavenly Father God, uh, thank you so much for your son Jesus Christ. Thank you for his example to us as someone who served us humbly and humbled himself to the point of death on a cross so that we might have a relationship with the Father. Lord God, thank you for the wonder of the gospel. But thank you, Heavenly Father, that he is not only our example that we follow, but that he is the means by which we are able to live the life of a follower of Jesus. Heavenly Father, thank you that because we are found accepted in you, because of nothing that we have done, we are now allowed to and are able to, dependent on Jesus, obey and follow him. And Lord, I pray that we would do that. I pray that this passage would excite us and encourage us to put away sin 
to be really serious about our marriages, to look after our children well, to not want to be um, um, better in front of people's eyes, but to be humble and to be honest with each other, especially in our church community. Heavenly Father, help us as Chalmers Church to really learn to love each other well, not so that we can look humble, but so that we can know Christ and follow him and make him known. Heavenly Father, we pray that this would warm us this morning. Lord, we thank you so much for everything you have done for your son and for the cross. We pray these things in your mighty name. Amen.